In order to understand any good story, you really have to know how it starts. You have to know how the story starts, and you have to understand what is the crisis, what is the problem that makes this a story. Uh, For instance, if you've never read uh, Tolkien's uh, books, The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, and if you try to jump in and watch one of those movies, you've never read it, and and maybe you missed the first couple scenes, you'll have no idea who these little guys with hairy feet are running around and why this little ring is so important. It'll make no sense to you. My, my little girls really like the movie Frozen. If you miss the first part of that movie, dads, and you walk in, you'll have no idea why it's winter everywhere and there's a talking snowman and why Anna, or Anna as you say it, is looking so desperately for her sister. It'll make no sense to you. You have to understand how the story starts and you have to understand the problem that these characters are trying to solve. Otherwise, you'll have... No understanding of the hero, and the hero's actions will make no sense to you. Similarly, many people are confused when they read the Bible, and they're confused because they don't know how the story started, and they don't understand the problem, and because of this, they fail to see the beauty of the gospel, and they fail to see the glory of Jesus Christ because they have such a dim understanding of how everything started and what it was that went wrong at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we read of the saddest day in human history. Adam and Eve, first man and the first woman, sinned. They doubted the word of God. They did not trust in the goodness of God, and so they disobeyed his command. They took of the fruit that was forbidden and they ate. And their sin had immediate and disastrous results. This is the crisis. This is the problem that the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible tells us about how God is going about putting things right. There are disastrous results because of their sin, both for them personally and for the entire human race. And this crisis, this problem is the backdrop against which the saving work of God is seen in its true light. We see the results of their sin. We looked at their fatal error last week, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read now of those initial results. We see in verses 7 and 8 that their sin causes shame and it causes fear. We're going to pick up actually in verse 7. After eating, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The immediate result of their sin is, first of all, shame. It's shame. Ed Welch makes a helpful distinction between shame and guilt. Two things that we feel when we sin, right? Shame and guilt, but they're not exactly the same thing. Ed Welch describes guilt as the painful realization that I did something bad. Feel guilty. But shame is the painful feeling that I am something bad. For Adam and Eve, Satan had promised them that their eyes would be opened, and he was half speaking the truth because their eyes were opened when they took of the fruit. Their eyes were opened, and they now had the knowledge of good and evil, but they realized that by their sin, they themselves had become evil, and it brings shame. This means that the intimacy and the safety and the openness they once enjoyed with one another, described as nakedness at the end of chapter 2, they were both naked and were not ashamed, that's lost. Now they know their shame, and they seek to cover themselves up, sewing fig leaves together in a futile attempt to hide, not what they did, but to hide themselves. They're ashamed. But their shame is coupled with fear in verse 8. Verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, In the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And Adam will soon tell God, we hid because we were afraid. R.C. Sproul writes that we fear the holy because we are not holy. And he's exactly right. The sad result of their sin is that what was formerly a blessing to them, the presence of God, they used to enjoy God's presence in the garden. They used to walk with him and enjoy fellowship with him. But now what was once a blessing is perceived as a threat, a threat to their safety. 
Their sin had ruined their relationship with each other. Now they are shamed and covering themselves. And their sin has also ruined their relationship with God. They're afraid. The one whom they have doubted, the one whom they disobeyed, the one who is the author and king of all creation is coming. And that instills fear in their heart because they know that they're guilty. They know that they are unholy. They know that they are evil because of their sin. They are rebels and the holy judge is coming. So sin brings these immediate results of sin and shame. But we see in verses 9 through 13 that sin also invites divine interrogation. God is coming to speak with them. When we sin, God responds. God responds. We see this in verses 9 through 13. They heard, well, yeah, verse 9. Um, back up to verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So God is coming in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? Hiding and sowing fig leaves, both of them are pretty futile exercises. Those leaves aren't going to last very long, and they're not going to keep them very warm. We see the foolishness of that, but also hiding from God is foolish. David writes in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. See, we may hide, but God always wins those games of hide and seek. He comes to them and he finds them. In verses 1 through 5, the serpent had asked them questions. But now it's God's turn to ask them some questions. And he's not asking them because he doesn't know. Does God know everything? He does, doesn't he? So he's not asking them because he needs information. He's asking them questions because he wants them to see the consequences of their sin. He wants them to see the folly of their rebellion, and he's exposing that. But in their response, we see that their first sin of doubting God's word and disobeying his command, that first sin, like all of our sins, gives birth to more sin, doesn't it? Once you start down that path, sin breeds more sin. Rather than confess, Adam and Eve make excuses and they shift the blame. God first addresses Adam in verse 9. He says, where are you? Again, he's not looking for him because he doesn't know. He's coming for him because Adam is the one who's most responsible. Adam, where are you? You have a job to do. You have a role to fulfill. And you're not here. He's coming to Adam because Adam is the head of his family. He was created first. He was commissioned to exercise dominion over God's creation. And he was the one who received the command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam will be questioned first. In verse 10, Adam responds to God's question, where are you? With a simple explanation of why he's hiding. Look at what he says. Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You notice that Adam conveniently leaves out a minor detail, doesn't he? He leaves out this minor detail about violating God's law, eating of the fruit. He says, I was afraid, I was naked, so I hid. So God responds with another question, again, trying to draw out a true confession from the man Adam. This time he brings up the reality of sin, Look at verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, never before had Adam been afraid. What is the reason for his fear? Adam, why are you afraid? Did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat? I mean, this is like slow pitch softball. He's lobbed it right up there. Adam, confess your sin. Admit it. You have broken my law. Now that Adam has been asked directly about his sin, Adam responds, but notice that it's not with genuine repentance. There seems to be no sorrow. There seems to, do, there seems to be no sense of him taking responsibility. Notice what he says in verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. First, Adam blames his wife the one that he had affectionately called at the end of chapter 2, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he now calls that woman, you know, the person over there. She gave me the fruit. And then he not only blames his wife, he blames God. He said, God, it's the woman that you gave me. It's not my fault, God. 
You're the one who put her in my life. You should have known better. It's not my fault. And then finally, at the end of his statement, as if almost mumbling under his breath, he admits, I ate. A simple yes would have worked. You know, God said, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And he could have just said, yes, I did. But instead of owning his responsibility, he attempts to excuse himself by minimizing his part and instead pointing the finger at those he feels are truly to blame. God, if it wasn't for this woman and and you're the one who gave her to me anyway, I probably wouldn't have eaten, but sure, I ate. Next, God turns to the woman. And he addresses her in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Imagine being in Eve's shoes right now. Maybe they were made out of fig leaves, sandals. She's feeling shame, she's feeling guilt, and now she's stinging from the accusation of her husband. He just threw her under the bus. In order to try to excuse himself. And sadly, she follows his lead. She blames the serpent for deceiving her. And in blaming the creature, she too indicts the creator. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Just as Adam blamed God for making the woman, in a sense, the The woman is saying, God, it's the serpent, the one that you made. She's indicting her creator, pointing the finger of blame. Like Adam, she admits her sin, but also like Adam, she's denying her guilt. She's saying, it's not my fault. The fig leaves, the hiding, the blaming, the accusations of each other and of God, the man and woman are clearly ill-prepared to deal with their shame and deal with their fear. You know what? We are often just like Adam and Eve. We feel shame. We feel guilty. We know what we've done. But we attempt to hide from God and we attempt to hide from each other, don't we? We don't want anyone to see. We don't want anyone to know. We blame others blame our family, our, we blame our environment, we blame our circumstances. We're ultimately blaming God, the one who is sovereign over our experiences, over our relationships, over our circumstances, our background. Our knee-jerk reaction when our sin is exposed is to be defensive, to go into lawyer mode and explain why we're not as guilty as it seems. We often, just like them, fail to humbly confess our sin, and we foolishly try to deal with it on our own. Cover it up, hide, blame, make excuses, accuse others. So sin has brought immediate consequences for them as far as shame and fear, but sin has also invited divine interrogation. God has come to them and has asked them some questions, and they have not confessed or repented, even though they admitted that they did sin. Thirdly, we also see that sin results in a divine proclamation. Verses 14 through 19, God now speaks, but he's no longer asking questions. This is no longer a two-way conversation. God has the final word. He begins to speak, and the text itself shifts from prose, from this back and forth, to poetry, as God sort of has this monologue here declaring what will be the result of all of this. Adam and Eve have been on trial They've been questioned, and now the verdict is about to be rendered. The sentence for their sin is given by God. You see, God is not only the author of creation, he speaks and all things come to be. He is not only the king over creation, he commands his subjects to obey. He's also the judge of all creation who renders a verdict with the power of his word. He deals first with the serpent in verses 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, it's interesting. God asked questions of the man, and he asked questions of the woman. But he did not ask any questions of the serpent. 
The serpent, unlike the man and woman, had no opportunity to confess. He has no opportunity for reconciliation with God. He is simply judged. He's judged. His judgment serves as sort of the centerpiece of a sandwich. God first addresses the man, and then he addresses the woman, and then he curses the snake, and then he addresses the woman, and then he addresses the man. It's kind of like this funnel that brings everything down to focus here on the serpent. He's right in the crosshairs of God's judgment and receives the harshest condemnation of all of them. Cursed are you. This is the declaration of God. Although all animals will be under the curse, in a sense, there will now be death and suffering for all of creation, but the serpent will be especially condemned. He is sentenced to crawl on the ground and to, as it were, eat the dust. Not that snakes actually eat dirt, but they're crawling and their face is right in it. It's a, it's a kind of humiliation. The weapon that had been used by the enemy to, to bring death to humanity will be held in contempt by the Lord and by those who are made in his image. Cursed are you. In addition to this humiliation, eating dust, crawling on the ground, there's also a promise to the serpent, a promise of conflict. We see that in verse 15. Enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You see, God's addressing not just the animal, not just the serpent, that created creature. He's also addressing the evil personality that animated that creature in the moment of temptation. God is speaking to Satan himself to the great dragon, that ancient serpent of old, the deceiver, the liar, the enemy of God, who is a murderer from the beginning and a liar. This is about a deep and abiding conflict, a war between good and evil. This is about much, much more than just, you know, my wife doesn't like snakes. Okay, that's, God is saying much, much more than that when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is about a war, a conflict that will span generations, even when Adam and Eve are gone and off the scene. This conflict will end decisively with the serpent's defeat. See that at the end of verse 15, he, the singular offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A future descendant of the woman will strike a blow to the head of the snake and it will leave them both wounded. But the imagery here of a foot over the head is one that implies a decisive victory. The descendant of the woman will crush the serpent. Now, this promise that God makes, this promise, this is the, few, the, the first promise in the Bible where God promises something is going to happen. This promise is massively important. What it means is that even though man has sinned, even though they have fallen, even though death and suffering has now entered the world, even though mankind has rebelled, there is hope. There's hope for victory. All is not lost. This is the first glimmer in the Old Testament of good news, of gospel. God promised to provide a deliverer, a hero who would come and defeat God's enemy and rescue God's people. Satan had attacked man. Man, the the climax, the, the pinnacle of God's creation. Man who bore the very image of God. That's where Satan struck. Satan had led man to death. But it is through the Son of Man that Satan himself will be defeated. He had deceived the woman, but her offspring would crush his head. Now, this promise of offspring, it develops into a key theme throughout the rest of Genesis. And and more than just Genesis, it becomes a key theme throughout the Old Testament and even the entire Bible, this promise of offspring. So, So pay attention to this. As we go throughout the rest of Genesis, and as you read your Bibles on your own, watch for this thread, this promise of offspring. We see that Noah is commanded to be fruitful and multiply when they get off the ark. There must be offspring. We see that Abraham is promised a son and descendants, offspring, through whom the whole world will be blessed. David, King David, is promised that one of his descendants, one of his offspring, would reign forever. The Jewish nation would face extinction at many points. They were held as slaves in Egypt. They nearly died because of famine. They were, the, the Malachites attempted to wipe them out. As they are um, exiles in another land, Haman attempts to have them all extinguished. The serpent is at war with the offspring, 
trying to wipe them out, but he would not be successful. We get to the New Testament and we meet a woman, Mary, who bears a miraculous son, the offspring, offspring of the woman who would fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. He, like God promised, would be bruised. He would be scourged and crucified on a cross, but his death would mean decisive victory over the serpent. This is what God is promising in seed form right here in Genesis chapter 3, the first glimpse of hope, the first announcement of good news, the first promise that unfolds as Scripture goes on into the gospel. But it's not the serpent who's the only one who hears a verdict from God. Next, God turns to the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. As God speaks to the woman, we notice here, even amidst all of this judgment, we notice mercy. What did God say to the serpent? Because you have done this, cursed are you. But to the woman, he does not say, cursed are you. There is mercy for her. But there's also still consequences. If you mess with the bull, you get the horns. And it's always been that way. It's always been that way. There are consequences for her sin. The consequences for the woman are that her roles and her relationships will now become painful instead of a blessing. Her privilege of bearing children will now be marked by pain. Her loving relationship with her husband will now be marked by conflict. If you look there in verse 16 when it says, your desire shall be for your husband. Desire here refers to an impulse to have mastery over him, to control him to be the leader, although he was supposed to be the leader. She will desire the place of her husband. That leads to conflict, doesn't it? And notice his response. He shall rule over you. Rather than lovingly lead her and serve her, he will exercise authority in a harsh way. To love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate, as Derek Kidner points out. Rather than rule over creation together, now they will always be plagued by this constant impulse to rule over one another. Sin damages our relationship with God, and it ruins our relationship with one another. Then God turns to the man, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. We pointed out earlier that Adam is the first one to be confronted because he's most responsible, because he is the representative of his family and the human race. And he's also the one who receives the final word. For God is holding him responsible. His condemnation in verse 17 is twofold. First of all, God says, because number one, you listened to the voice of your wife, which is a reversal of the roles God had intended. He became a follower instead of a leader. Eve was deceived, but Adam knew better. And he followed her into sin and into death. And then secondly, because he ate what God had forbidden, that twofold condemnation, Because of this, he is going to experience the consequences of his sin. But like the woman, we see mercy here again. The man is not cursed directly. He does not say, cursed are you. Rather, he says in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Pointed out a few weeks ago that even Adam's name, Adam, is closely related to the word for the ground, the dust, Adamah. The ground that bears Adam's name, the ground from which he was formed, the ground over which he is supposed to rule, the ground that he is supposed to cultivate and bring life and fruitfulness out of, that ground, the realm of his role is going to be cursed. The ground now will be his enemy. There will be thorns and thistles. His work is going to be hard. At every point, his work is going to be opposed. He's going to be pushing a rock uphill for the rest of his life. His toil will be painful. 
There will be pain in his work. There will be pain in his labor. There will be pain in his eating. And this painful life will end in death, just as God had promised. The man of dust will return to the dust. Rather than rule over the ground, God says, Adam, you are going to be consumed by the ground. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We hear the echo of God's warning in chapter 2. Chapter two you will surely die. And thus ends the pronunciation of God upon those who have rebelled against his word. But the narrative doesn't end with that final word of death. We see again a spark of good news, a spark of hope in verse 20. We see that sinners receive not only judgment, they, don't, they not only receive a divine proclamation against their sin, but sinners also receive divine prov- provision. Divine provision. Look in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What a contrast. To dust you shall return. But Eve is the mother of the living. And then in verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It almost seems out of place after that pronouncement of death to say, and then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Shouldn't that belong in another place? I think Moses puts that here on purpose. Puts that here on purpose. Although man has fallen, we see here that Adam is still naming, like he named the animals in Chapter 2, Adam is still attempting to carry on his commission. He still reflects the image of God, even if it's been distorted by sin. And he names his wife in faith. Adam has heard the promise of God that Eve is going to bear children and that there are going to be offspring. And he believes that promise. So he names his wife Eve. Although they are sentenced to death, he believes that she will be the mother of the living. Although death was coming, Life would continue. And God was going to provide through his wife Eve the hero that they needed. The snake crusher would be one of their descendants. Adam latched onto this promise in the naming of his wife. He knew that God would provide offspring for them. God also provides for their continued life outside the garden. He provides clothing. They had sewed fig leaves together, but we all know that's not going to work. And God, in his grace, steps down and provides clothing that is far superior to their pathetic attempts to hide their nakedness. The man and woman have rebelled against God, but they're still dependent on God for their needs. And God, in his grace, meets their need, and he clothes them. He clothes them. But that's not how this narrative ends. We see that though God is gracious, though he provides for their needs, though he promises offspring again, there are still consequences for their sin. Following this this pronouncement of judgment, we see that sinners, finally, are prohibited from entering God's presence. They are prohibited from entering God's presence. Verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The scene started with them hiding in the garden. And it ends now with them being expelled from the garden. They are no longer welcome there. This place that God had planted and cultivated for them to dwell and work and enjoy this fruitful place, they were no longer allowed access. That was where God was, and that was where his blessing was manifested. Because they've rejected God, they may no longer enjoy his blessings, and they must be sent out. And the text gives the, the, the sense that they didn't go willingly. They didn't want to leave. God says, first of all, sent them out. But then it turns around and says, he drove them out, pushed them out. They're expelled from the, bla- the place of blessing. Sin is rebelling against the rule of God. And as a result, their relationship with him is fractured. And they cannot be with him in that place of blessing any longer. Later, when the tabernacle would be built, and then after that, the temple, the inner sanctuary, the place where the presence of God was manifested, was called the Holy of Holies. 
and no one could go in except the high priest only once a year. There was a great curtain that separated people who were outside from God who was on the inside. The unholy cannot dwell with the holy. Eden is a picture of the temple. That's where God's presence is. Because of their sin, they are driven out. Just like the temple curtain kept people out of the holy place, the holy of holies, we see that God places an angelic guard at the entrance so that they can never return. The cherubim throughout Scripture are always those who were there in the presence of God, in his throne room. The cherubim keep the people out from the garden. You see, they had disobeyed God's command once before, and God knew that he could not trust them to not eat from the tree of life. God knows they must reap what they have sown. He has promised death, and he's not going to allow them to take a detour around him and disobey once again and take of the tree of life and live forever. God will not permit them to gain life through rebellion. No, eternal life is to be had. God does desire for them to live, but it will come through repentance not through rebellion. It must be received through faith in God's word rather than taken in defiance of God's word. The tree of life appears again in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 22, we see the tree of life there in God's presence and it is to be enjoyed. It is to be taken from, but it's to be enjoyed by the saints who have put their trust in God for salvation and submitted to his lordship. So the tree of life will be eaten of again but not through disobedience, only through faith and repentance. So at the end of chapter 3, we find that paradise has been lost. Paradise has been lost. God's people have rebelled and made themselves out to be God, so they've been driven out of the place of blessing, expelled from God's presence, and they now face difficulty, pain, conflict, and death. Lost are all the blessings of original creation. And that explains our experience today. Difficulty, pain, loss, conflict, suffering, and death. We are still reaping what Adam and Eve sowed. Lost are all the blessings of original creation. But in the midst of this tragedy and sorrow, in the midst of this judgment, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope, a promise that one day someone would come who would triumph over the enemy and succeed where Adam and Eve had failed. There's really, these two themes are really what emerges throughout this story. In this compelling and tragic story, we see these twin themes of judgment and grace. Judgment and grace. We must never forget that sin brings judgment. There are no exceptions. Consequences for sin are natural, and divine judgment is inevitable. This reality cannot be escaped or denied. If you are living a life of secret sin, it will bear bad fruit in your life. If you are rebelling against God, if you refuse to submit to him, it will end in judgment. There are no exceptions. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also Reap. Genesis 3 is placed here. Remember who Moses is writing this to. The book of Genesis is written by Moses and given to the children of Israel after they have come out of Egypt and they've just received the law. God just came down to Sinai and wrote it on a tablet and gave it to them. And now the question is will these Israelites obey God's law or will they follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, their forefathers, and break God's command? This is giving here as a warning. If you break God's law, there will be judgment. There will be consequences. And as such, it's a valuable lesson for us as well. Will we be wise and embrace God's good design for us and for our lives? Or will we foolishly cast off his rule and say, I will be king of my life and reap the sad results of destruction that comes? There's a theme of judgment that emerges here in Genesis chapter 3. But like we mentioned earlier, there's also this beautiful theme of grace. Man's sin is not only met with divine judgment, God also responds by extending grace. If God doesn't show grace, there isn't even a story after this. They eat of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and then they die. Period. Full stop. And there's nobody even around to read about this story later. That's how it could have ended. 
But God is gracious. Grace is evident in God's patience. He's patient with them. Gives them an opportunity to confess. He comes to them and draws them out before he drives them out. He doesn't come in with the cherubim, pushing them out of their hiding place and sending them out of the garden. No, he comes asking questions patiently, drawing them out. We see God's grace in his pursuit that they don't go looking for God, saying, God, we've sinned and we need your help because we can't fix it. No, God comes looking for them. God pursues sinners. He comes seeking them like the good shepherd who goes to seek and save the sheep that is lost. God comes looking for the man and the woman. We see his grace there. We see, again, his patience as he bears with their excuses and their blame shifting. And we see his grace most beautifully in the promise, the promise that God will not leave them without hope. We see this grace in God's provision, that he meets their needs even though they've rebelled against him, that he provides what they lack, that he does for them what they cannot do for themselves. And God's exactly that way with you and me. God's exactly that way with us. He seeks us. He's patient with us. He pursues us. He extends gracious promises to us. And he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In forgiving our sin, removing our shame, removing our guilt, and giving us life instead of death. Why? Why such grace? Why would God pursue them and do this instead of letting the sword of justice fall immediately? It's a display of his glory. God's display of grace is him showing us who he really is and how great he is. His grace is the display of his glory and it is the, re the revelation of his love. God, get this, God wants a relationship with these people. That's why he pursues them. That's why he, he makes provision for them. That's why he promises to, to bring a redeemer through their offspring because God loves them and he wants a relationship with these people he's created in his image. And God loves us. He loves you and he wants a relationship with you. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to show us his grace and to reveal to us and demonstrate his love. John writes in John 1.16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace, the grace of God, comes to us in the person of Jesus. It's not just an abstract feeling that God has. Grace is revealed to us in a person, Jesus Christ, a person who shows us the love of God. 1 John 4.10, again, John writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God not only pursues Adam and Eve, he not only makes provision for Adam and Eve, he pursues us. He left the throne in heaven took on flesh, became a man to come down to where we are, to seek us, to extend grace to us, to demonstrate his love for us. We sang earlier, from heaven he came and sought us to be his faithful bride. With his own blood he bought us, and for our life he died. Grace and judgment, love and justice they meet at the cross. They meet at the cross. At the cross, we see the fullness of God's grace and his judgment, the fullness of his love and his justice simultaneously demonstrated as Jesus suffers, as Jesus dies. Full punishment, death, wrath, separation from God, judgment for the sin bearer, for Christ. But life, forgiveness, restoration, and salvation for the one who believes, the one for whom Jesus died, the one whose place Jesus is taking as he hangs on the cross. This is why Jesus came. And in doing all this, Jesus sets us free from sin. He sets us free from death. He sets us free from the effects of the fall and the curse that we see in Genesis chapter 3. 
in the death and resurrection of Jesus, this ancient curse is rolled back. In Genesis chapter 3, we see this curse of what the experience of man and woman will be like, but through Jesus, this curse is reversed. It is undone, and we are made new. Through Christ, our shame and fear is removed. Hebrews 10 says we can come boldly before the throne because we're clothed in his righteousness. The author of Hebrews writes, we have confidence, not fear, not shame. We have confidence to enter the holy places, those places that previously we were barred from, the places that were guarded by cherubim and and walled off by curtains. He says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. And at that moment, something amazing happened. In the temple in Jerusalem, that curtain that separated sinful man from the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom as God removed the barrier that kept you and me from him so that we could be reconciled, so that we can enjoy his presence. Hebrews says we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Through Christ, our shame and our fear is removed. We have access to God. Through faith in Christ, we are rescued from death, rescued from the curse. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, when Jesus dies, he doesn't cancel the curse. He rather takes the fullness of this curse and absorbs it himself so that the wrath of God is spent and there's no more judgment left for us. Christ became a curse for us. Through Christ, we are restored to relationship with God and given eternal life in God's kingdom. What was lost at the garden is restored through Jesus 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. In the garden, we see that God sends the people away. He sends them away. But because of the cross, God now welcomes us in and joins in relationship with us. We're reconciled. And instead of death, we now have life. John 3, famous words of Jesus God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For those who believe death in the dust is not the end of the story. There's eternal life coming for those who believe in Christ. Through Christ, the enemy is destroyed. The serpent's head has been crushed. Colossians 2.15 says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking of demonic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And we see that in the end, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is going to triumph over Satan and cast him into the lake of fire where he will be punished for all of eternity. Jesus Christ is the head crusher who comes and fulfills the promise, destroying our enemy. Through Christ, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit and we await a home with God in the new creation where the curse will be no more. This is the beginning of the story in Genesis. At the end of the story in Revelation, John writes in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. No more separation. No longer barred from access to the garden, to that to that prehistoric temple, as it were, where the presence of God was. No, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The curse is being reversed. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Pain, suffering, and sorrow, gone. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things. Those things that have been with us since Genesis chapter 3, the former things have passed away. When we understand the judgment and the grace of God that's revealed in Christ, it ought to produce in us both fear and faith. Fear and faith. We should fear When we consider the judgment of God, that sin brings judgment. We ought to have a godly sense of fear. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Take him seriously. 
do not, do not minimize his holiness. Do not think of our sin merely as missteps or mistakes or even struggles. Call it what it is. It's rebellion against the holiness of God, and it brings judgment. Don't think that we can get away with just a little slap on the wrist. God always punishes sin, always, every sin. Either you pay for it forever in hell or Jesus pays for it on the cross, but every sin will be judged, will be punished. We fear his holiness. Like Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire and that ought to produce fear in us. But it's not just his judgment that produces fear, it's also his grace that produces fear. Not in the sense of being terrified, but the kind of fear that is in awe at the majesty of this God. We fear in the sense that we marvel at his grace. That it's a big deal to us. Not a small thing that we easily forget and easily get over. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God is just. He is a judge. Verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness. And the psalmist writes, There is forgiveness that you may be feared. The forgiveness of God, the grace of God, produces a sense of fear in us. The old spiritual song says, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. When we see the judgment and the grace of God manifested at the cross, it causes us to tremble. Should, this should produce in us fear. But also as we read, as, as we see these themes emerging from this story, it should produce faith. Faith. I want to call you this morning to trust in the promise. Trust in the promise of God that he alone is the only one who can solve our problem. It is only through faith in him. It is only through the true hero Jesus that the curse can be undone and that you and I can escape the consequences for our sin. So believe, believe. Shame and fear and hiding, that reveals unbelief. Unbelief. When you and I are crushed by shame and fear, it means we're not believing that Jesus can save. When you and I hide our sin, it means we don't believe in forgiveness. And we think we can clean our own life up by hiding it, making it look better. But don't do that. Believe in the promise. Hope in Christ. I want to invite you this morning to run to him rather than running away from him. Adam and Eve ran in the wrong direction when they experienced fear and guilt. If you feel this morning a sense of shame for your sin, if you are plagued this morning by a feeling of guilt and fear because you know you've broken his law, I want to call you to run to Christ instead of running away from him. Because he is gracious and he can save. He has promised to do so. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10 tells us, shall be saved. It's a promise. It's a promise. First John promises us, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that promise? If you do, then run to him and believe. Stop hiding. Stop covering. You don't have to live a life enslaved to your guilt and your shame. And pretending like it's not there isn't going to make it go away. You can sew all the fig leaves together you want. It won't help. Only Christ can provide true relief from guilt and shame. So run to him. This means we repent not only of our sin, but get this. It means that you and I must repent also of our self-efforts. True, genuine faith trusts only in God, only in his promise, only in the work of his son, and does not trust in self-effort. It does not attempt to cover up ourselves with the fig leaves of self-righteousness and deception. We repent not only of our sin, but also of our self-righteousness. We renounce all of it and turn to Christ and Christ alone. In 1662, the Puritan pastor David Dixon wrote this as he lay on his deathbed. And I love this. I've shared this before. But he writes, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and have cast them together in a heap before the Lord and have fled from both to Jesus Christ and in him I have sweet peace. Have you repented of your self-righteousness? 
Or are you still trusting in your good works? Are you still trying to be good enough and try hard enough and do enough good things to somehow balance out the bad stuff you've done? It doesn't work. Only God can provide the covering, the righteousness that we need. Genesis 3 shows man's failure and it explains to us what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world. But it also highlights the ideals for God's creation. What was lost in Eden shows us how things are supposed to be and therefore points us forward in anticipation to what God will one day bring to bear when he restores all things. What was lost in Eden will one day be restored. God's people will once again dwell with God in his, bla- in his place under his rule, enjoying his blessing. Though we are sinful people who live in a sinful world, the good news is that there's hope of salvation. There's hope of salvation. Hope of life that triumphs over death. Hope of reconciliation with God. Hope of a restored creation where there's no more pain or conflict or death or enemy. This hope comes to us in the form of a promise. And it's a promise that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. May we seek him Trust him and submit to him as we long for the day when the curse is reversed, death and sin are undone, and all things are made new. God in heaven, we thank you that though we have sinned and run away from you, you are gracious, you are loving, you've pursued us, you've provided what we need, you've promised redemption through your son, Jesus Christ the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, the one who fulfills all of your promises. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. It cost you. You were bruised and crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions. Upon you was the punishment that brings us peace. It's by your wounds that we are healed. We thank you, Lord, for the victory you've accomplished, and we look forward to the day when your plan of redemption will be brought to completion, the enemy fully destroyed, and redemption consummated in a new heaven, in a new earth, where we dwell with you. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us this morning, that you would humble us, produce in our hearts godly fear and genuine faith, and give us courage, Lord, to share this bad news and this good news with those who are around us, those who need to hear how they can be reconciled with God. We pray that your spirit would fill us and empower us for this mission. Strengthen our faith, we pray, and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.